Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to, hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. It has become abundantly clear to all of us that the coronavirus pandemic is going to change our way of life, certainly in the immediate future, but also moving forward as well. And there's also no denying that tennis has been impacted by this virus, particularly hard given the international nature of the game. There are so many athletes from across the globe trying to compete to become the best tennis player they can be, to climb their way to the top of the rankings. And of course, there are so many tournaments held in various locations across the globe that tennis is particularly susceptible to this sort of pandemic. Now, there's also no denying that in this time period when there are no live tournaments, no matches to be considered, no results to worry about, that the, the tennis minds that be, our best thinkers in the game, our biggest personalities, our most influential people are using this moment to address some of the inequalities, some of just the flaws in the professional tennis world, the professional tennis structure. And one of those flaws that has constantly been referred to is how many entities there are in tennis. There are different tours, the ATP and WTA, so many different tournaments, so many different tennis federations, no player unions for either the men or the women. And we've started to see this coronavirus has exposed how impacted tennis players, tennis coaches, all of these tournaments can can be by something like this. I will mention this stat when we get into our interview, but something along the lines of $200 million in revenue has already been lost in the 30 events that have been canceled for players at just the WTA International ATP 250 levels and above. That doesn't include the thousands of challengers and futures events, the thousands of you know non-certified pro circuit events, but money tournaments across the globe that will continue to be impacted, You know, continue to not be played until we get to a point where we can resume play again. And those results are devastating. But as I've mentioned, it does seem like the best minds in the game, the most influential personalities are coming together to try and address some of those issues on the mini break podcast I did for Tuesday, the one for Wednesday as well. Actually, I talked about the player relief fund that has emerged, what ATP, WTA players, the Grand Slams, the two tour organizations, tournaments across the globe are trying to do to provide at least some uh, sort of relief for hundreds of players out there. Now, some of you may say those uh, those relief packages are inadequate. They're not going to be enough. And, you know, certainly there's merit to that, but it's, it's a start. There's no denying that. But big news was made today, and that's why we are recording this emergency version of the Great Shot podcast. Uh, Roger Federer, 728 on Wednesday morning, tweeting out, just wondering, am I the only one thinking that now is the time for men's and women's tennis to be united and come together as one, meaning one unified tour? And the responses to it have been remarkable. Now, we are going to talk about those responses, the impact of this, the 
potential benefits, the potential cons in one unified tour in a little bit with, you know, superstar head coach, tennis channel personality. I joke around and call him the best looking guy in tennis media. Uh, Coach Mark Lucero, who of course has come on this podcast so many times. We're always uh, grateful when he's willing to do just that. I'm going to talk about him about this announcement, the impact that it's had, the backlash we've seen throughout the tennis world. Uh, But before I can do that, I have to let all of you know that these podcasts are made possible by our friends at Midwest Sports. And for more than 20 years, Midwest Sports has served as one of the world's premier tennis equipment suppliers. They have one of the largest in-stock inventories of tennis equipment online with tens of thousands of products available for shipping that few retailers can match. It's your one-stop shop for all of your tennis needs. Do you need rackets? Do you need strings? Do you need shoes? Do you need gear? They've got it all there and more. They're well-trained staff. They're also intimately familiar with all of their tennis equipment, and they will help you find that perfect racket, shoe, clothing that is sure to put your game ahead of the competition. And look, Every piece counts, that 1%. Even if that shirt just has that you're wearing makes you feel a little bit confident. I've had days where I'm wearing too baggy of a shirt on the court and I have to mess with the sleeves like I'm Andy Roddick or the cotton is chafing my nipples. And that's the most frustrating thing in the world. I promise you, with talking to the experts at Midwest Sports, they will ensure that doesn't happen. They will ensure that you get the sort of products, the sort of equipment you need to bring out the best in their game. So go to their website, MidwestSports.com. Use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off all of your orders. Uh, You also, if your order exceeds $75, rest assured, you know that there will be free shipping with those sorts of orders. So 15% off free shipping. You can knock out all of your tennis needs at once uh, by going to MidwestSports.com using our promo code CR15. Now, with that being said, let's get to my conversation with the one and only Mark Lucera. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us on the podcast today, you probably know him best for his role as the coach of Steve Johnson and Nicole Gibbs. I know him best both as a burrito critic, of course, but as a returning member to our Cracked Rackets podcast. Coach Mark Lucero, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? Oh, great day. Sunny in uh, Southern California, probably 75 degrees and uh, talking with uh, the Cracked Rackets team. Fired up. I appreciate you saying that. It definitely gets harder and harder to quarantine as the weather gets better and better now. Of course, still do it. Stay safe. Stay healthy. You want to go back to normal life. Suck it up. But it's, yeah, you you see outside and there's sunshine. And I was like, oh, I might just walk outside shirtless just because. Oh, that's part of the everyday activity. Don't you worry. <laughs> Maybe, you know, I called you the most handsome man in tennis media. Took some grief <laughs> for it from our friend Steve Weissman. But yeah, maybe when you're the most handsome man, you can afford to do that every day. For me, the reflection is just, bl- uh, you know, blinding. So don't want to inflict that pain on my neighbors. But obviously, we are always so thrilled to have you on the show. The reason we wanted to have you today is because what seems to be just a week of endless news stories gets better and better in the tennis world. And I'll give tennis this. 
it's keeping us entertained. It's keeping our thoughts provoked. We are all brainstorming different ideas because Roger Federer decided to have some fun with everyone this morning. It was 7.53 a.m. on the East, oh, 7.28 a.m. on the East Coast, 4.28, which means you were probably finishing up your second of three daily runs, Coach Lucero, when Roger Federer tweeted out, just wondering, am I the only one thinking that now is the time for men's and women's tennis to be united and come together as one, that being a reference to a merger between the ATP and WTA tours. And the first reaction for me was seeing just all of the responses from the tennis world. This wasn't just an offhand comment, and Roger Federer doesn't make offhand comments. He doesn't just stir the pot. That's not his brand. But Coach Lucero, when you saw this tweet, when you saw everything unfolding in the tennis universe as it did today, what came to mind for you? Well, immediately, you know, my first thought was, I wonder what's going on behind the scenes. Because like you said, you know, Roger's not a millennial who, you know, is narcissistic and thinks that, you know, everyone in the world wants to know their every waking thought. You know, I, I, we all know that something like this doesn't just get put out there without reason. Um, You know, I think it's fascinating. I think it's potentially a great thing to grow tennis with a capital T to grow the entire game. You know, not just men's tennis or women's tennis, but just the the entire world of tennis. And yeah, I mean, there's just a number of of thoughts that come to mind when you get further along that, you know, that string. But, uh, you know, when I saw it, I was just like, it it was like a bit of a jaw drop, you know, rolling out of bed and checking Twitter. And um, just because of the weight of that text, you know, Roger is someone who moves the needle. And then to see Rafa jump in, like, you know, like, like you said, it was four, 30 in the morning, uh, my time. So by the time I woke up, you know, there was Roger's tweet and then there was Rafa's tweet. And when I saw that, I was just like, you know, wow, like things are, things are changing potentially. No, without question. And I'm going to avoid the dig at millennials as millennial. Going to just agree to disagree on that. We can hold that for a different podcast discussion. But you're absolutely right. And it does get me thinking, and this isn't just my theory. I brought it up on the mini break that I think was published Wednesday. But, you know, we have seen so much social media activity from not just players throughout the globe, professional players, but the top rung players, especially as of late, you see the Instagram uh sessions with Djokovic, with Murray, with Federer, with Nadal, Wawrinka, on and on and on. And this gets a little conspiratorial, but when a, when a news item of this caliber drops, an announcement like this, I'm starting to think it was all staged. I'm really starting to think that these players were coming together and they were trying to build momentum and this sort of decision had been in the works for a while because that's what, and you know, Pospisil came in later. You mentioned the Nadal tweet. Pospisil came in later and I think he said something along the lines of, yeah, hey guys, we've been discussing something like this uh, actually all the way back since January. I think it was a great idea. The ATP has been working on this since they brought the vision forward to us in January. This doesn't seem like an off-the-cuff thing. This doesn't feel like it was something that because of the coronavirus pandemic was just, you know, a thought that came into the mind and kind of developed from there. And of course, this idea isn't a new one. It dates back, and this has been making the rounds as well, all the way back to Billie Jean King, who has been fighting for equality in tennis her entire life. Um, But I don't know, does it feel to you like this is something that has been in motion for a while? Yeah, 100%. You know, I think I think there's there's a few things that are sort of at play here. One is this this break from competitive tennis, I think, is giving people a chance to, well, there's this break from competitive tennis as well as 
the fact that there's a lot of people who are, you know, who are in need or who are in unstable situations right now, meaning like, like the players is given people in influential positions in the game, a lot of time to think about how they can affect change because, you know, they're not out there competing every week and they're practicing every day. There's actually some time and there, and there's a real need to affect some change. So I think that, you know, we saw it first with, Novak, Roger, and Rafa getting together to spearhead this relief fund for the ATP players. And that was something that was in motion, you know, speaking to the men's and women's tours, potentially uh, coming under one roof. You know, Andrea Godenzi, the new CEO of the tour, he's been on record saying, you know, supporting that idea from the beginning of his tenure, which is a departure from the past when the the women had made overtures in the past to the atp but the atp had always sort of resisted you know as thinking that you know it might dilute their brand a little bit or basically saying there was no need to do that if um you know equal prize money was already in place and so the women were going to get equal prize money anyway so just let the men you know continue to like negotiate with the grand slams and and the big tournaments you know the indian wells of the world for increased prize money because by virtue of the equal prize money uh, rule the women would benefit anyway, so there was no need to be um, together on that. But um, yeah, so ba- basically to answer your question, you know, yeah, it feels like you know the 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 wheels have been churning behind the scenes. It's been amazing they've been able to keep it relatively quiet. Um, you know, at the same time too, it could be one of these things where um, you know there have been talks among certain stakeholders, and then you get Roger and and these guys and Rafa who. Maybe you're like, you know what, we want to really put the screws to some people to make some stuff happen by and then, you know, by going public with that in the way they did today, I think they really, you know, potentially put some people on their toes. Yeah. And you talked about there, there's context behind this. It's not just, uh, this isn't the first time this has been discussed. There have been these sorts of ideas around tennis for so long. And, you know, you wonder why does it come up in this moment? You sort of got to some of those things, but you you start to parse the reasoning why. And I'm curious in your mind, how much of this do you think is just by financial uh, necessity that the tours are looking at the potential financial impact? I think I read somewhere that in the 30 events lost thus far, there's something like $200 million in prize money between just the WTA international and ATP 250 and up level events and on. And you start to wonder, as you talked about the player relief uh, packages have started to become clearer and clearer. And I, I do wonder, does tennis capital at capital T, as you say, view this as just a, a financial necessity moving forward? Yeah, a hundred percent. I, I think, you know, as you were sort of, at, you know, just going into that question right there and talking about the reasoning behind it, uh, I think what this is, what this pandemic has sort of shown is, is how tenuous everything in the game really is. And it's caused, again, if you have people looking at the overall health of the game or the game, you know, of professional tennis, you know, Novak, Roger, Rafa, again, these guys taking a 360 degree view, you know, you have to figure out how can we ensure the viability of the tour moving forward? How, uh, you know, the professional game speaking collectively, how can we prepare tennis to come back in some sense, meaning with a vastly changed financial landscape based on, you know, everything, you know, the world's dealing with right now. And, you know, as we do that, like, where does the value 
in the game lie? You know, where where is the most value? Where are the pay where the players paid the most? Where are the TV and media contracts worth the most? And any way you look at it, it's the four grand slams, Indian Wells, Miami, uh, you know, the, the big combined events like that, Beijing uh, for the women, um, Shanghai for the men, which essentially, you know, there's Beijing's combined event, Shanghai's men's only, but um, essentially you're, we're talking about the combined events for the most valuable properties in the game. And, you know, if you think about what, what tennis would need to do to secure its long-term future, and to protect players in the future or to have the ability, you know, of the tours or the potentially the tour to protect the men's and women's, you know, players in the event of anything happening, you know, how can we, how can we capitalize on that value? And, and I think the answer is, you know, the game's stronger when it's together. Mm-hmm. And, and I do want to ask you about the player relief funding and where that money's coming from in a bit. But to stick on this, uh, the idea of forming one tour, something we've also talked about in the past, tour unionization amongst players, and the idea that it wouldn't just be the men bargaining for themselves, it wouldn't just be the women bargaining for themselves, but collectively now there would be one tennis players union. And we already saw, I think it was yesterday, and poor ITF, this announcement going to just get buried <laughs> under the larger scheme but they announced the player count or a new ITF player council as well for players. I think it's like a 350 is the highest you can be ranked on the men's side, 150 on the women's side that they're going to try and empower to help make decisions and in order for the ITF to receive player uh, input in the decisions that they make. And I'm curious, when you look at the biggest benefits of for for the two emerging, we've sort of touched on the financial aspect, but from just, again, the idea of unionization, how, how essential would it be to be under one tour? Because there's just not a world where the players could bargain collectively together with all of the separate entities that there are in tennis right now. This would help alleviate a lot of those concerns, right? Yeah, 100%. And, and it would just, it would make it much easier. You know, anytime you have, anytime you have a critical mass that stands for something, people take notice. As that critical mass gets bigger, there's more and more pressure uh, for the other side to deal with those demands. And then there's more and more pressure for them, you know, to find a way to make it work. And, you know, on the other side of that, if you have, you know, the tours sort of as the ones dealing with the players or like the tour operators, if, you know, the, the biggest thing on their side would be able to package the tournaments collectively for media and television and broadcast rights, because I think that's the way, you know, if you have everybody operating separately and independently and like, you know, such and such tournament sells their rights in this country, but like this other tournament can sell their rights globally, um, you know, it just gets very messy. And then, you know, the money is so spread out versus if they can consolidate those things and then, you know, and bundle them together, um, you know, potentially you have more money concentrated in one place, which, you know, the players obviously would be able to collectively bargain for. Yeah, and I do want to talk about the concerns because there's an idea of, well, if tennis becomes a monopoly and it's the biggest tournaments and the best players who are getting, uh, you know, receiving the biggest amounts of benefits from this, that's a problem. And there are other concerns as well, but just sticking to this idea of media rights because you tweeted out immediately, and I think I saw it at the time, something, it was bundling the TV packages, uh, bundle the TV rights. Bundle's a great word, by the way. Uh, So, hey, great shot to you. But, you know, why... Would that, why is that such an important aspect if this were to happen? Well, I think you have to figure out um, how the tours 
are going to generate income or excuse me, how the, you know, how a United tour would generate income because we've seen, uh, you know, in this crisis, the tours basically say we don't have the money to provide any relief to the players. You know, we've seen that coming basically out of both tours. Like the women have provided some support with, you know, the Indian Wells advance of the prize money and then returning some dues. The men have returned some dues. And then, you know, it took, it took the top hundred male players coming forward to say they were going to provide some relief to players for the, you know, the ITF and the Grand Slams to step up and do the same thing. Uh, and I don't think, I honestly don't think it should be that way. Um, so, you know, I, I just, I think the, you know, potentially putting together a package where, you know, like I said, the, the TV media rights, the broadcast rights were bundled, um, you know, would just create bigger, bigger pots of bigger pools of money. Yeah, uh, and hopefully that would be the case. I, uh, I completely agree with you. Now, let's let's look at the flip side, the biggest concerns, because there are certainly reasons why that the two the two tours haven't merged to this point. Right. Things such as scheduling and money distribution. Uh, there, you know, what what would be the biggest obstacles, I suppose, to pulling this off, in your opinion? Uh, I mean, immediately coming to mind are existing sanctions existing contracts um you know such and such a tournament has a sanction for seven years and they're contractually obligated to provide you know this level of prize money this year you know whatever x percent increase next year y percent increase the following year and you know and yeah they're tied into that contract for however many years and you have another tournament where the sanction expires in three years and then you have another event um that's you know, just starting and, um, you know, everyone's agreed to different terms. I, I think those are some of the biggest concerns. I think you have sort of, I think you have stuff like the men's pension, the women's pension, which differ vastly. I think you have, you know, the rules and stuff that can be sorted out. I think rankings, points, those sorts of things could be sorted out. I don't think, I think those things are just sort of details. I think the biggest, uh, you know, the biggest deals for me are, you know, pension issues and then, uh, existing contracts with uh, either sponsors or, you know, tournaments and sanctions, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Pay, scheduling, you probably throw media attention in there as well. How do you ensure that equal amounts of matches and, you know, are being broadcasted uh, by all of these people, especially if the media rights are all bundled? How do you make sure they're not only showing men's tennis, that women's tennis is being highlighted as well? Uh, but That's it does why you have feel, good you know, attorneys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh well i hope my parents don't hear that because like oh alex you could go be an attorney and still enjoy tennis <laughs> yeah. uh, i'd be like oh, all right come on like i don't want to hear that right now but uh you talk about the player relief portion of this and i do want to get into that now because as you mentioned i think it was on monday where rafa or where Djokovic came out with this letter it was published by john wertheim in si and they talk about a player relief fund where they would want i think it's the top five players to give 30 000, no less than 30 thousand five through ten twenty thousand it's all you know declining amounts depending on your ranking all the way through the top 100 you know the goal is for them is to raise about a million dollars through that hopefully the slams the tournaments will give a little bit more that number i think came out today to around six uh they're trying to give six million in relief to about 800 players uh additionally if there are world tour finals roger rafa Djokovic agreeing to give away 50 percent of the prize money and potentially do more with prize money as we 
we approach the Australian Open. And in terms of player relief, uh, you know, it, it's a two-sided argument, right? On the one side, it's good that they're finally getting their act together. It's good like that, that there are now finally money. There's, you know, a figure attached to it. They're trying to get 10,000 players, uh, $10,000 to all of these different pay- players who have been impacted. But uh, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the player relief? What are your thoughts on the way the ATP and the WTA have responded in trying to get this relief to the players? Yeah, I would think... Anytime you see the players proactive, I think it's great. And to see, you, you know, how the players, how the men uh, players in particular came together pretty fast and put something into action, I think it's great. Um, I think, you know, where I think some of the sticking points lie, uh, it's when you sort of talk about which players are going to be receiving some sort of um, financial, uh, you know, benefit. Um, Novak in his letter talked about 250 to 700. Um, I mean, I think there's players who are outside the top 100 who could use, you know, an assist um, for sure. I think, um, you know, I think it's I think the ideas are great. I think I think everyone has pretty good intentions. It's often the execution that becomes tricky and ultimately not everybody's happy. I mean, if you look at the CARES Act that passed, you know, a week or two ago, um, you know, that idea was great execution you know left some to be desired so you know we're talking about this um you know the biggest problem is that the tours don't have a huge pot of money that they can be proactive with you know that's just the biggest thing um i think you know again noble intentions from the itf and the grand slams um but you know it's just not everybody there just aren't aren't big enough pots of money sitting around or big enough pots of money in like a rainy day fund Uh, to really, I think, probably enact as much help as you would like to. Yeah, and I think that gets back to something we started with, the financial necessity, perhaps, of these tours needing to merge. Because, again, you know, I I said the figure earlier, $200 million, that's a lot of money. And that money is lost in terms of prize money opportunities for so many of these players. And, yes, you would, you know, the big three and Serena and the top of the the women on the top of the women's game probably have more than enough money than they're ever, more money than they're ever going to need. But I, I... I do wonder how much of this is out of a financial necessity. How badly is tennis hurting right now? I I feel like it might be a lot. Yeah, I think it's hurting, you know, more than people would guess. I think for, you know, for a lot of players, um, you know, there's they, they probably don't have as much money saved as, uh, as people might think. Um, and especially when you look outside the top 100. I mean, for sure, there's players who are, you know, saving a lot of money on some of their extraneous costs right now. You know, you talk about people that play the ITF um, tour for sure. You know, if you're making five hundred dollars in a week and you're spending a thousand, yeah, you, you're probably coming out a little bit better off right now. But still, you know, um, going straight to zero is not you know is, is not ideal. And you know, again, when you look at the tours and you talk about you talk about however many two hundred million dollars like lost. Um, it's not like that's $200 million that's sitting in Ponte Vedra Beach bank account of the ATP tour that's not getting paid out. Like it's, you know, it's whatever it's $250,000, you know, a small tour event and it's, you know, $50 million in the French open and it's, you know, a million dollars in the Queens club bank account. It's, 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 it's so spread out and so much of that money too at these tournaments is contingent on sponsors and, you know, looking as potentially we try to come out of this in 2021, um, 
are these sponsors going to return? Are the sponsors going to be in a position to return? You know, would a combined tour be able to deliver more value to a sponsors in the future that are looking to be more judicious with their advertising and promotional dollars, you know, potentially. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you again. And it's why I am encouraged by this. The idea that players would just be able to far more successfully collectively bargain and protect themselves and ensure, you know, that the two, there'd just be less entities. There'd be less, you know, people that have to be negotiated with. As you mentioned, you got to talk to the LTA. You have to talk to the French Tennis Federation. You have to talk to the Tunisian Tennis Federation. You have to go across the globe because there, you know, there are endless possibilities. I am curious, just again, this is a random tidbit, uh, not conspiratorial, but bordering on the idea. Uh, if you eliminated appearance fees just from tennis existence, they were outlawed for a year. How much money do you think would then become available for players in other aspects, you know, in other ways? Well, I, I would love if they just pushed those into the prize money pool. I think it'd be great. Ex- no, I, I completely agree because I, I feel like, I, again, I, I, you hear numbers and some of them you think, okay, that might be a little absurd, but some of them... I mean, are fairly. You hear from multiple people that it's six figures to get certain players in certain places, and you know if they're all playing twenty tournaments a year, let's subtract four because the Grand Slams don't need to pay appearance fees, and you know some of the Masters as well. But that's millions of dollars potentially that is available in prize money. Now the thing is, and this is why I think you know unionization has always been difficult. Would a top player ever want to give away those? you know, appearance fees, probably not. But in a, in a world where there's a collective union of tennis players, isn't that something that could, you know, the 70% of players who aren't raking in appearance fees outvote the 30% up top? Yeah. I mean, but the thing is like unions do not exist to serve like the elite, you know, unions exist to benefit the masses, to benefit the people that can't, that don't have the leverage to fight for those things on their own. You know what I mean? And then the fact that you have, again, the fact that you have Roger and Rafa and Novak in positions and showing in the last couple of weeks that they're looking to affect change, it, it leads me to think that they, you know, that I think they see their place in the game and in the game's history. And I just have the sense that they're trying to, you know, create a legacy that extends beyond, you know, the trophy cabinet. And that's just the feeling, the feeling that I get. No, I mean, their contributions to the game are well noted at this point. And I think it was Michael Samelski who pointed out that uh, this uh, today is the 52nd anniversary of the first tournament of the Open Era, which was a combined men's and women's event. And it's fitting that, you know, we make history on that similarly today. Um, All right. If you were to give a percentage, and I know, you know, we're not privy to the ATP Council, ATP executive conversations, but if you were to give a percentage and WTA equivalents as well, what do you think the chances are that this is actually executed, that post-coronavirus you know, coronavirus pandemic, we come back to a game that is potentially one merged tour? I think one way or the other, I don't, I don't quite know what it would look like. I don't know the, I don't know the significance. You know, I, just, I don't know the vision um, that has been discussed or what they're talking about. I think in some way or form, I think chances are very good that we see some sort of unification. I don't quite know what that means. I don't know if it means that it's a sort of a process over a few years as the tours start to do more things together. I don't know if it's, you know, I definitely don't think it's going to be a, Hey, January 1st, 2021, like we have an entirely new rule book and both of the tours are together and whatever, all contracts are canceled. I have no idea, but I do think in some way moving forward out of this, I think, you know, I I would say 75% chance that 
there's some sort of uh, some sort of unification measure underway. What do you think they call it? Just the tennis tour, like TTT? <laughs> That's a little strong. Triple T? I, I don't know. It's uh, no. I I think it's certainly fascinating. I think. At least for things right now, you see so many. De- I'm curious on your topic, uh, your thoughts on this topic as well. But certainly in the immediate short term, we have started to see little exhibition events trickling out here and there. There are team tennis ideas floating around the country. I do think tennis will undergo some structural changes as a result of this coronavirus pandemic, whether it's a unified tour or whether it's you know how many events we're playing, where we're playing the events, uh, what that's going to look like. I feel like th- now it, tennis is certainly being swept up in changes in this moment yeah 100 percent. i mean i think what you're seeing right now i mean i know the you know they want to do an event in the south of france they're playing a couple matches uh in bradenton right now what i think this is and what i think would be the only real possibility to have tournament tennis anytime soon would be tennis played on a regional level so you know as a way to basically get around existing travel uh via you know travel restrictions as a way to get around extensive um broadening of your circle of contacts that sort of thing um i think you know again i think i think i mentioned it to you last time i was on um i think the best you know chance we see for real professional you know quote unquote real for professional tennis anytime soon is world team tennis because they can operate in a way like the nba or major league baseball um you know, yeah, I think any tennis we're going to see this year, like you said, is going to be a reimagining of what it can be. Um, I think that there's going to be some opportunities for people to be really proactive and to try some new things. And potentially, you know, if you do it in a regional way and it's covered, it's broadcast, I think it's a way potentially to develop uh, the profiles of, you know, players, particularly here in the U.S., American players. Yeah safety and health issues obviously would be considered first, but if you had to pick one facility in the country where you said, all right, we're quarantining all the players here and here's where we're playing the matches, which would you pick? Jeez. Um, I don't know. I might Hard pick, hitting questions at the end. I, I might pick some place in like big sky country, you know, Montana, Sun Valley, something like that. Uh, Boise, that part of the country where the, you know, the, the effects of the COVID-19 have been pretty minimal and where, you know, a lot of open air, people can be very spread out. Um, that sort of thing. That's what I would think about doing. There's got to be like a four, like a beautiful four court facility in Aspen. And we just introduce elements of like, yeah. And there's just, you introduce elements of altitude and seeing how like, you know, Djokovic in altitude is probably (laughs) just a monster compared to everyone else. But yeah, that, that it would be so fascinating, especially if they do that. And then, you know, events start to come back and it's like, well, this guy was winning all the regional events, right? Shouldn't he get some sort of, but you know, Brandon Nakashima goes on a 13 match American winning streak. And it's like, we're not going to give this guy a wild card or something there are so many you know little you know, little implications and potential uh outcomes if regional tennis starts to come back i don't know what i guess it you know neither of us are scientists but in terms of i'm not uh, a scientist. right now I, I, yes then you're a burrito critic uh but not a, i suppose that's a science in itself i'm an amateur economist that's what i am <laughs> but if, yeah absolutely for right now you know july 13th i feel like it's still very tentative for a two return would it shock you if that gets pushed back uh 1000 would not shock me if it gets pushed back yeah it's it's just too 
I mean, there's just so many, everything's being canceled. Tiburon just got canceled. That's late September. Um, it, I, it, it, it feel like the percentages of seeing no tennis in 2020 continue to get higher and higher. And the, you know, the reason it's on everyone's mind, the idea of players would have to be vaccinated before coming on back to tour. And, you know, right. Max Djokovic made his uh, comments this week. And again, shout out to the guy who tweeted that out first because he probably, or he or she probably felt like such a champion at the moment. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, that that's the only way tennis comes back right is if because as you mentioned as currently constructed you just couldn't there's no fluid body that could uh constantly perform tests on these players making sure they're not exposed you can't just quarantine especially given the scale of the event depending on what it is all of these players in one place because they're all coming from different home countries so it does feel like tennis will be maybe one of the more adversely affected sports and again in the long term what does that matter but do you, do you think that's fair to say tennis yeah, is I mean, less likely to return I, yeah, less likely for a number, you know, I, precisely. I think I think that the travel restriction reason is the biggest. Um, I think if other sports are returning, it's because, again, because like you said, they have access to testing. Their testing is not taking away from testing from people that actually need it. Uh, you know, the, the point guard from the Utah Jazz, who's feeling fine, doesn't need to be taking a test every two days when, you know, we can't get a test in... Uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, you know, but if testing has scaled up to the point where that's not an issue and, you know, the tennis world can get a ton of tests and get access to it um, and the numbers have improved around the world so that every player has the equal ability to get to a tournament, then I think we can see it. But, you know, if players cannot get to events because of worldwide travel restrictions, um, if you know, if things haven't changed and European nationals, uh, European, you know, if Swiss nationals and Spanish people and whoever, if they can't get into the United States or if they can't get someplace or if we can't get into, you know, some European country, then you can't, you know, you can't have tournaments. It's impossible, even yeah. if you have all the testing in the world. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, until we see extensive testing, ideally, if there's a vaccine that people can take and feel confident about, um, if the antibody tests are, are plentiful, they, you know, then I think we can start to get back to normal. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I completely agree with you. This is a random question, but it's really just a buildup for a joke. Have you ever played on carpet? I have played on carpet. Okay. Okay. Now I have a couple of follow-ups. A, <laughs> what, why was that ever a good idea? And B, what is that like? Uh, I don't know why it was a good idea. Um, Maybe, you don't know, you I'm, get friction? Aren't you like shocking yourself all the time? Uh, I don't think I, I don't think I had shot. The, the thing about carpet is that it's pretty, it's generally pretty quick, and mm-hmm. they use carpet a lot in the days when you know when there were a lot of really quick surfaces around the world, and you know it was very popular in Europe. I don't know, you know, I'm, I know there was carpet in the United States. I don't know if it was that prevalent. I mean, I grew up playing outdoor tennis, so you know we didn't really have indoor courts in san diego but uh yeah i mean it's fine it's kind of weird uh there's this one club in uh, one of the david lloyd's clubs in london that we would hit uh you know on the rainy days before the wimbledon practice courts were open that went to a bunch and it was just you know it was just weird to play but i always kind of felt like you know i was watching like a becker versus sampras or becker versus lentil from like back in the day when i got on those courts <laughs> no it would be the only time my serve would be effective the reason i asked is yeah because that i feel like yeah. Does the virus uh, last the, longer on carpet or what? 
No, uh, the reason I ask is I feel like the only way the tours come back is if we can somehow environmental damage aside be like, all right, we've quarantined all of you on Antarctica. And, you know, ice plays pretty similarly to carpet, so we've done something like this before. That was what the setup was for. I thought I'd get to that. You know, again, I didn't want to leave anything in the queue. Well, uh, with with climate change, there's a pretty good chance we could play on outdoor hard courts there, you know, so... I shouldn't be laughing. That's, you know, us millennials, we care a lot about climate change. Uh, well, those so, of you who uh, believe in it, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's my generation that has the problem believing <laughs> okay, in it. Fair but, enough. Uh, but, you know, I don't want to I don't want to uh, talk down to I don't know the demographics exactly of our <laughs> listeners. So I love you all equally. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, so last time I had you here and again, it's been a couple of weeks since we last talked. Just to, I asked you for some YouTube recommendations. I'm going back to the well, Coach Lucero. Oh. What have you been doing in your quarantine time? Any new hobbies you've picked up? What is maybe the match you've been researching or watching on YouTube that you just can't get away from? Uh, gosh. Um, what have I been doing? Well, I bought an Xbox. Um, it's the first time really? I... <laughs> it's the first time that I've played video games since I was in college. Uh, I was playing NHL 99 in college, so that tells you how long ago that was. Um, that was like my freshman year, by the way, not my senior year. But um, yeah, I bought an Xbox, playing some Madden. I currently have the San Diego Chargers in the AFC Championship game um, in my first season, so feeling pretty good about that. Uh, trying to talk Stevie J into buying an Xbox so we can play some NHL online. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's about it. I've been, I've been tuning into a lot of uh, DJ D Nice live sets on Instagram. He, he mixes most afternoons and almost every night. And on the weekends, he plays long sets. So that's pretty cool. Um, and uh, yeah, as far as watching matches, I've just been watching matches of the players I play. So nothing exciting. <laughs> or excuse me, the players I coach, not the players I play, the players I coach. Well, first of all, I would argue Stevie J and Jack Sock played, or not, it wasn't against Jack Sock. Who was the semifinal? Was that Kruger? Uh, Mitchell Kruger, Kruger, yeah. Yeah, that was a really fun match for me. Uh, so, you know, not the worst film to be watching. Uh, a, or B, it's the Los Angeles Chargers, but I understand why you would be confused. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's on, cool. don't sell when the Chargers play home games, I get to see the dignity health sports park you know because i can't go there right now because it's closed i get to see my place of work uh when i fire up the xbox you know yeah no that's absolutely <laughs> a win for you so th- they closed uh the southern cal usta facilities yes all the usta facilities are closed i don't think they're opening in the me you know in, in the short future potentially florida because you know the governor there is uh thinks of a different mind from the rest of the governors that <laughs> believe in science but um yeah, I, so I, you know, I think with you know the USTA is a huge organization. Um, given their uh, you know potential liability, obviously for any corporation, I don't see them opening the centers anytime soon. No, for yeah. sure. And, and, you know, it's coaches around the globe are affected by that, of course. And for all of these players, we talked about it. Some of them will teach tennis on the side. And obviously you can't do that right now either. So, I, you know, I'm sorry. That's Yeah, I think uh, some places yeah. are start, starting to open up the courts a little bit. You know, some places where the effects haven't been as, uh, as widespread. The USTA put out a pretty good release today about some, some tips on how to, you know, how to transition back into playing tennis um, and sort of limit your risk for exposure. Uh, they had a nice PDF today that was pretty helpful. So, um, yeah, I think there's certain parts of the country where people are going to be able, you know, are going to continue to get out there and try to play a little bit more. And hopefully that happens soon in California for us. 
Hopefully it happens for all of us. And again, that's why you quarantine now so we can get through this as soon as possible. Play a little Xbox like Coach Lucero. Dude, I can't would. wait. Big I game can't... big game coming up after our call. <laughs> well, you know, I don't want to hold you back any longer. I will say this. I have been rewatching mid-2000s, a lot of mid-2000s tennis. Who are you watching? Again, it's hard. So I'm, I've watched a lot of Roddick. I've watched a lot of Leighton Hewitt, and all I see is Diego Schwartzman. Like, I can't <laughs> unsee it. It's clouded my judgment completely. I watched Safin. I, Safin is fascinating to me. He because was my he's like, the second sort of favorite player of that era. With the sort of weapons he has, I, I mean, I don't care if, you know, it doesn't tra- you know, you give him new equipment. His game translates to now. Just the, the how big he hits the ball, how dominant he is from the baseline. It's Del Potro-esque, young Del Potro, healthy Del Potro, but it, that's what it reminds me of. Yeah, he, he played a, you know, he was sort of one of these guys that was a, almost a bridge between generations. Um, he was so big and physical and could move and he could hurt you on both sides. Um, you know, that Agassi Sampras group, uh, you know, Pete couldn't really hurt you at the back end. There were a bunch of, you know, the players were a little bit more limited with where, you know, there were safe parts of the court to go to with, with Murat. Um, he hit the ball so big on both sides. He could really impose himself out there, served huge. He was really fun to watch. Um, he, like I said, he was my second favorite player from that era. Maybe my top player from that era, um, like the post on, like the kind of in-between group was uh, Rios. I freaking love watching Rios play. I like no, the tor- I like the tortured geniuses Rio Staffan like <laughs> <laughs> like early early nineties Andre like that was like those are the guys that I could understand you know <laughs> yeah of course tortured genius again but it's us millennials who are narcissistic um, no <laughs> just kidding um, no uh, all right last one because you're one of my favorite tennis pundits to throw these sort of questions <laughs> okay. at. Um, you get to play one of these careers out, and obviously, you know, yeah, or whatever. I'm not going to actually give you the bias question before. I'm just going to say it. You get to play out one of the careers. You can either have Venus's career or you can have the career of Monica Seles. Which do you pick? Oh, man. Um, because I, I did it, the context now that I've asked the question. I did a mini break on Venus's career stats, on Celis's career stats, and I thought Justine Ennin was going to meet that criteria. But as good as she was, the longevity of Venus, how great Celis was early on in her career, sort of outweigh her. But it's tough. That's one of those you know sustained longevity, six different forms of Venus versus you know early '90s Celis was just yeah. special. So and good. Her upside. Yeah, it's crazy. So good. I remember like ball kidding for her. But um, I, I, you know, to be honest, the thing that I, I would choose Venus, and I would choose Venus because she's played through so many generations, and because she still loves the game. I mean, I, I've been lucky enough to, you know, be on the practice court with her and um, at tournaments or even at home in Florida, and uh, like she just has such a love. Like you know, she's only she's playing tennis because she loves it. She, you know, she doesn't have to play. She doesn't have anything to prove to people, but she goes out there because she loves the game. I think she still has some things she wants to prove to herself because she's a competitor. But, um, yeah, I, I, to see that love for the game, to see her choosing to do it because she wants to, and to have seen so many different generations in the game and, and measured herself against so many great players over you know over time from playing against you know the Sanchez Vicarios and Capriotis and Davenport's to you know, like you said, to the Hennens to you know, to the players now. It's uh, it's just it's pretty cool. Like, what a cool, what a cool thing. 
No, absolutely. Um, all right, I'm going to throw another one at you, and then I swear I'll let you go. Hingis, 97. She goes 71-5, and five, three Grand Slam titles, makes the final of the French Open as well. In terms of her during the peak of her powers, how good was she? I mean, just so much ball control. She could put the ball on a dime. She could. She was one of the best that, I've, that I remember seeing um, at diffusing and redirecting power. Like, she could absorb and redirect big balls from some big hitters on tour and really sort of use, uh, you know, this was an era where the power players weren't exactly super mobile yet. And so she could use the power. She could, you know, stand on the baseline, absorb the power and use that ball speed against the person who just hit it at her. And, uh, you know, she had a bunch of shots. She had drop shots, she had angles, she had lobs. Um, she had a really like a wide array of things to, uh, to hurt players with. And so she was, I mean, you know, she was super fun to watch. And, you know, for a yeah, girl who's, you know, she's not, wasn't a huge imposing player, but she could just do so many things on court. It was just really special. I have turned to her quite a bit in my highlights as well, because I, I just look at, again, those early years. She was so special. Could really, as you mentioned, put the ball anywhere she wanted. She had all the schools. It reminds me, you know, a little bit of Sophia Kennan. You know, you can't yeah. translate it directly because the ball's a little bit different, but that's what I saw when watching her, and that's why, you know, I'm like, oh, so this Kennan game style really could work. It, you know, it's not just a one slam wonder. She, It's that, I've seen this before. That's uh, a pretty good comparison. I, that's, a, that's a really good comparison, Alex. Well done. Uh, I appreciate that. I'm working my way up the uh, ranks. Um, but no, uh, that, that's all I got for you. Any final thoughts uh, before we wrap this up? Um, not really. I think we're good. <laughs> I'm glad. Have you dented any walls volleying against them? Any uh, any behind-the-scene bloopers in trying to do your tennis channel content? <laughs> um, no, I went to the wall today in an empty parking lot. Um, nothing bad happened. Just hit a few balls in the wall. Uh, that's about it. Yeah, no... Uh, no low lights, only highlights so far. <laughs> I'm glad to see it. Well, I would also watch, you know, a minute of bloopers of you just like trying to make a volley and it just shanks away or, you know, whatever it may be. I think that would be really interesting. I went out one day with a wood racket and broken strings and that one didn't go so well. <laughs> just for posterity purposes? Just no, to, you know, I, I, you it was, to um, you know, Roger did his 100 volleys and then like, Rickus de Villiers went like around the whole tennis court and uh, people kept raising the bar. Kudlow was like using a wine bottle. I was like, geez, I got to freaking do something creative. And I actually, I actually took a surfboard out and like laid on it and, and tried to try to volley with a wood racket <laughs> lying on like prone on a surfboard. And I couldn't do it. Like it's too hard. <laughs> See, that's the sort of blooper content I would eat up. Like, we uh, we tried something similar for a segment we were doing in our backyard, and I just kept missing. And our producer was literally like, we're just done. He's like, Alex, you tried. It's not working. That's a, <laughs> okay. a crack Rackets exclusive. Nobody knows I tried that. Yeah, oh, I appreciate that. And again, we'll try and work to pry the video of you. I've got my video guy tracking you for moments like this. Uh, so I'll ask him what he got. But, you know, Coach Lucero, again, it is always a pleasure when we get to chat. Really appreciate you doing this on such short notice. Stay safe, stay healthy. And again, you are always welcome to come back on our Crack Rackets podcast. Thanks, Alex. Love what you guys do. Um, next time you get Weissman on, you can tell him that we're co, you know, co. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, one A, one B, and we know who's uh, who's A. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, take care, Coach. Stay All right, safe. Yeah. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. 
from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Coach Mark Lucero. And of course, we are always so grateful whenever he's willing to come onto the podcast. It's always an entertaining time. He's always willing to endure some of my, we'll say, less quality questions. And of course, come back with such an articulate answer. So he really is a pleasure to have as a guest. Thank you to him. If you want to hear more about what is going on on tour, you need a daily update of all the news because there really has been so much news as of late. Be sure to go listen to to our mini break podcast, our daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. We've got an edition of Technique Tuesday on a Thursday going up today, but yesterday we got the chance to talk to ITA CEO Tim Russell and explore the ways the coronavirus pandemic has impacted college tennis and what the ITA is up to to try and you know solve the problems, best position college tennis as a sport moving forward. Of course, no one is more familiar with the efforts going on under or the efforts underway than CEO Tim Russell. So that was a great interview. Hopefully, you all will go check that out on our Cracked Interviews podcast. You know, I got to t- the chance to talk to a former ATP top five player in the world this week. I chatted with Tommy Robredo about his time on tour, what continues to motivate him to play after so much success on tour, why he still loves the game the way he does, his Spanish generation, and you know some of the bloopers of his. Career career and more. So be sure to go check that out again on our Cracked Interviews podcast. And I will always ask, please like, rate, subscribe, review this podcast, the uh, the mini break podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast. It means the world to us. Share it with your friends. If you have comments, let us know if you think there are interviews we can do better. If there's questions you'd like us to ask that we haven't thus far, I know eventually we're going to do a mailbag episode where we will just answer your questions directly and be on the lookout for that. But of course, if you're looking for more comments, content, be sure to go to our YouTube channel. You can subscribe at Cracked Rackets and guarantee you're never going to miss any of the action. It's 15 seconds. If you're listening to this portion of the podcast, you have 15 seconds to spare. So, you know, it's three clicks. Actually, honestly, if you're listening to this portion of the podcast, you're probably already subscribed to the YouTube channel. So seriously, thank you for doing that. I've promised as soon as we get over a thousand subscribers, I will stop asking each and every episode, but I know how much it would mean to super producer Daniel Westoff, given how hard he's worked on on series such as Overserved, or look at all of the comedy that happens on tour on a week-by-week basis, such as CR Classics, or look at some of the best matches in tennis history. Thus far, we have done uh, CR Classics on, or I should say published, we've done more, but we've got them in the queue. That's a tease, folks. Uh, but we have done and published podcasts on the 01 Wimbledon semifinal between Agassi and Rafter, the 2011 French Open semifinal between Djokovic and Federer, uh, and we've got more coming, so if you've missed any of that content, again, go to our YouTube channel at Cracked Rackets. And if you've missed anything at all, the website is CrackedRackets.com. Go follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. It's at Cracked Rackets. You want to DM me directly because you're like, Alex, stop asking me to DM you directly. Uh, go visit me at Great Shot Pod on Twitter. I'm also immensely appreciative of our friends at Midwest Sports. And again, they've served as one of the world's premier tennis equipment suppliers for more than 20 years. You go to their website, MidwestSports.com. 
you're going to have all of anything you need uh, tennis-wise, equipment from shoes, socks, tennis balls, strings, rackets. It's all there. You use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off your order. Free shipping for all orders over $75. The last person and the person I am most appreciative for, of course, I should say the people I'm most appreciative for, are super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, who have a of an editing job to do, as they always do, day in, day out. They never disappoint. They make me sound competent, and that is the highest compliment anyone can give me. Uh, You know, that's probably the toughest work out there, so my parents had to do it for 21 years, 22 years. Fligner and Westhoff have taken over, taken uh, the slack since then, so shout out to them as always. But that'll do it for today's podcast. One last shout out again to our wonderful guest, Coach Mark Lucero, from him, from our friends at Midwest Sports, from our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks. Hey, great shot. And we will see you all next time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> 